Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Zealots at the Gate. This is the start of season two, so we're really excited about that. We have a great episode for you today on a fascinating topic on the politics of prayer. And also, we may even talk about how my friend and co-host Matt Kamink has actually made me a better Muslim by making me think differently about prayer. So, all that to come. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Feel free to leave us a review. We always like to see that. You can join the conversation and ask Matt and I questions by using the hashtag ZealotsPod on Twitter. Or feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. As many of you will know, I'm Shadi Hamid. I'm a Muslim. Matt Kamink. My friend and co-host is a Christian. He's a theologian. I'm a political scientist. And I'm excited, too, because we're going to talk about a more personal set of topics today, how prayer affects each of us in our respective traditions, and also the implications of prayer for politics and for democracy. Matt, what say you? Get us going. Well, Shadi, I've got a number of a number of questions and things that I'm that I'm wrestling with when it comes to the connection between prayer and politics. Uh, the first is: Is prayer political? Does it have any kind of political or public consequence, or is it just some private spiritual practice that is just about our our internal feelings and values and personal relationship with God? Is it is it public? Is it political? Uh, the second is: um, If you bring prayer into the political um what are some of the abusive or or bad ways that that can that that relationship can go um Mm. another is and this is the one that i really want to jump into right off the bat is how does the regular practice of prayer as a muslim or as a christian how does it shape us as citizens how does it change the way we think about the state or our leaders, or how we uh, interact with other citizens around us. Um, And I think while there are many important differences between the Muslim practice of prayer and many Muslim practices of prayer and Christian practices of prayer, there are also some important similarities. And I think that the first one is that of submission to something, to someone greater than yourself. Um, for Muslims, this is a, this is a bodily act of submission. Um, but it is this sense that, that we are submitting and humbling ourselves before a power that is greater than us. And when I think about the many things that are challenging American democracy today, um, and there are many, um, one is a a sort of self-centered to American citizens that can make us um, 
impervious to po- good political dialogue and conversation. This belief that I possess the truth, that I am sufficient in and of myself, and I am not interested in what you have to say because I am the center of the universe. And it seems to me that the practice of prayer is a regular recognition that that isn't true. Um, that I am to pray is to admit that you are not sufficient in and of yourself. To pray is to admit that you don't know everything about what you ought to do in life. And so that's the first thing I'm thinking about yeah. when I think about democracy and the health of our democracy and the practice of prayer. But I'm just curious, you know, from your side of the submissiveness uh, of Muslim prayer, how that, how that, you know, hits You're you. You're calling me submissive, Matthew? Is that where <laughs> we're going here? Uh, well, what does the word Islam mean? <laughs> Islam does quite literally mean submission. So that is accurate. You know, I, First of all, I don't really know how this conversation is going to go because we haven't talked a whole lot about these issues in the past, and that's one of the reasons I'm excited. Also, it is more personal, as I mentioned earlier. And I don't know if you rem- – I'm sure you do remember, but a couple of weeks back, we did – you asked me this question in passing, and I think you stumped me, and I've been thinking about it a little bit more. You said something like, well, Shadi – you know, you're very public, you know, you write a lot and you appear in the media and there is a kind of, that is like one aspect of you and that has certain implications, but you're also a believer uh, who prays um, or at least, you know, tries to, <laughs> tries to pray, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, to meet well, the... Well, to uh, say it a little stronger, Shadi, I think, I think what I was saying was, you know, Shadi, you often have a little bit of bravado in your public oh. presence. Like you have a little strength in, in the takes that you have in your articles and on Twitter. You come out strong. And yet you also practice this this daily practice of prayer in which you humble yourself and you put your head down. And that seems like a very humbling posture to take. And I was wondering, how do you how do you think about the connection between, you know, bowing and, and putting your your face down to the ground, and also having this sort of powerful public voice where you you know you do speak with some confidence sometimes, and you mix it up on Twitter and in debates <laughs> and things like that. So, like, how do you think about that connection between the Muslim practice of prayer of humility? Um, you know, it's not a very prideful position to take. Like, yeah, that's that's yeah, what I'm. I'm it's a great with. question, and. I have to confess that I was I was stumped because I hadn't really thought of it in exactly those terms and part of the issue to be quite honest is prayer has become too rote of a ritual. I'm not as conscious as I think I should be when I am in the practice of prayer. It's something that I've made a conscious effort to do more of and to try my best to meet the five prayers a day and so forth. But because it's more of an, like seen at least from my perspective as an obligation and a duty, I guess I, I guess I lost sense of like the spiritual power of it. And that's, 
And with your prodding and also just, you know, thinking more about these issues in light of my own religious evolution and the fact that when all of you hear this, it'll be Ramadan, the holy month in Islam of fasting. So I I do want to like put this into practice. Now, how the how these two things how the kind of the ego-centered approach of public persona, you know, because even if we're not, you know, being provocative or contrarian or expressing bravado with strong takes, anyone who is in the public sphere has to engage in some performance where their ego plays a prominent role. There's just no way to avoid it. I think it's one of the... Um, occupational hazards of our occupation and and i I, and i I will want to turn this to you matt because i think that you're you're less interested in the kind of public persona aspect and i think that's probably good for your own faith and religion and keeping yourself centered and humble so there there might very well be a trade-off here because if you if you write a lot of articles and you have strong opinions that is ultimately centering yourself in a discourse that you think that your personal thoughts and struggles. So let's say, especially if you're writing in like your own personal blog or Substack, that does tend to lead to more personal reflections and sharing with many random people who you don't know, like your inner self and your kind of unformed thoughts. You got to have a certain sense of self to feel that your own random thoughts and reflections could be relevant to tens of thousands of people who don't really know you and you don't really know them. So I think, I think it's a real challenge. Okay. So then going now to the practice of prayer and how we should think about it from an Islamic perspective, um, you know, listeners will probably have seen, you know, visually pictures of Muslims praying and the act of prostration, of putting your forehead on the ground, and that is part of each of the five daily prayers. Um, so anyone who prays is doing that. And there is something really powerful. And I guess because I don't, I haven't thought as much about Christian prayer or Jewish prayer, and I haven't been part of those prayers by definition. I mean, I have been to church, you know, when I was in, you know, Boy Scouts as a kid, and we used to go on weekend camping trips. Um, everyone else was Christian, and so Sunday morning, they would all go to church, and I, so I just went in with them and sat. I didn't participate, but, um, and, you know, my parents knew about that, and I think we were open-minded enough to not feel like that would be a conflict. I just had to know that, you know, I was observing, and I'm not going to participate, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. When I think about prayer, I think about Muslims praying, so it didn't even really occur to me that the act of prostration on the ground is actually really distinctive and really powerful, Because it does mean that you are saying and you are acknowledging that you are not, you are nothing compared to God. You, you're acknowledging your own smallness and even irrelevance in the, in broader cosmological time and space. Because if God is sovereign, if God is the ultimate, if God is the all knowing and all powerful, 
then we are quite literally nothing compared to that. I mean, so so there is, it has remarkable implications when you start to think of it in that more self-conscious way. And clearly a lot of people don't, because yeah. if you really took the act of prostration seriously, like you wouldn't be a dictator, you know, and that that's obviously a big issue in the Middle East and, you know, in other Muslim majority contexts, that how can someone acknowledge their humility in front of God in this way and then act as if they themselves are God and that they can control the life and death for their own citizens by killing them, torturing them, um, arresting them. There is really um, a profound disjuncture there. Yeah, so what's the, that brings up yeah. the term hypocrisy, right? Of having yes. two faces, of behaving in one way before God and in another way before human beings. And Christianity and Islam have pretty strong words about that, about that sort of yeah. disjuncture between religious performance and political practice, right? Yeah, exactly. And maybe I'll just add one more personal thing, and then we'll be curious to kind of hear how you respond. So if I start to take prayer more seriously, more seriously and consciously in this particular way of allowing the physical manifestation of the movements of prayer to translate into a kind of deeper spiritual acknowledgement of my, my lower place in the broader universe. I wonder if that would change how I interact in the public sphere. Would it like, would there be an expectation of, some sort of shift. I mean, I try to be, you know, you know, I I try to be, you know, obviously the very fact that I'm saying this means that, you know, maybe it's not entirely true, but I think both of us try to be, try to take on a, a sort of intellectual humility in, in the work that we do. And we try to the best of our ability to acknowledge that we don't have definitive answers, that, Sometimes we make mistakes and get things wrong, and sometimes we maybe express too much bravado in the public sphere. That's something I have to struggle with because um, I get in various online controversies, and sometimes I have to ask myself, is this something that I should be doing? Is this worth it? Um, And is there maybe a way to kind of tone that down a little bit? Um, so I do wonder about that, and maybe if I start to think more about bowing my head and putting my forehead on the floor, and I make that like, maybe that could actually have an effect in this direction. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd love to have another conversation. We've talked about this as Ramadan approaches about fasting and politics as well. Yeah. Um, and stay tuned for that conversation. I, I want to talk about the other side of this. You know, so we've talked a little bit about how prayer can humble us and remind us that we're not God and that we're not self-sufficient. But I'm, speaking from the Christian side, there there's also a way in which prayer can lift us up um, and empower us and embolden us. Um, this This recognition that I, Matthew, have the ability to come before the God of the universe. I have access to the sovereign. And Mm. there is nothing the state can do to stop me from addressing the sovereign. 
there's there's there is a part of my soul that the state cannot own that the state cannot control and prayer is this place that is um yeah this alternative um form of communication that is not controlled by by twitter by the media by the state by any other cultural or political force and there's something very uh disruptive and empowering about prayer in that it it says that anyone no matter what the world thinks of you can can access god uh in a direct way and that is um so that so so p- prayer not only has the 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 ability to humble us but it also has the ability to make us into uh i would say dangerous citizens citizens mm. that might mm. resist um you know what the state is telling us or what leaders are telling us that zealots it, if you will yeah they can make a zealot <laughs> the good system. kind of zealot that's a great tie in shaddy <laughs> wow yeah wait cuz i mean wasn't Jesus a sort of zealot? I mean, Reza Aslan wrote the book um, "Zealot," um, and anyway, but that's like a yeah. Little bit well, of a tangent. I'm, yeah, Jesus certainly got himself into a bit of trouble. Um, he had a <laughs> he had a zealot uh, within his disciples, um, but he also had a tax collector who worked for the state. So the interesting thing there is he had um, he had a radical and a conservative there within his his community of followers mm. and mm. he was able to hold them together um but yes he was recognized as a, as a danger to the jewish community and the roman community well maybe before we jump into all that can you maybe give me and us a little bit more background in how you yourself as a christian and an evangelical pray I mean, obviously, a lot of listeners will be familiar, but some may not be. I think that Muslims in particular don't really have a great sense of how Christians pray. I mean, obviously, people will be aware of going to church on a weekly basis, but maybe beyond the kind of weekly church attendance, what does prayer look like for you? Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a variety of different kinds of prayer. Um, There is the, the communal prayer within the church, and... Uh, in the church, we will have prayers of confession, where we confess our sins to God. We will have uh, prayers of the people, where we pray for others within our community, but then we also pray for our city and our nation. And so we we might pray for what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, we might pray for various social and political issues um, and ask God to to help or to work there. So those um, then we have like a prayer of, of blessing and sending that sends us out into the world. Um, so there's a variety of different prayers communally. And then um, individually, um, it's very common for Christians to have um, prayers around the dinner table. Um, so my wife and children and I, we will hold hands around the dinner table and we will pray together. Um, sometimes we will sing instead of pray. Um, and then individual prayers um, that can happen often for Christians in the morning. Um, sometimes Christians like to sort of bookend the day with a morning prayer and an evening prayer. Um, but these aren't quite as regimented as and scheduled as, as a Muslim prayer um, practice of prayer might be. So then how does a Christian decide how often to pray 
and how to pray? Or is there just like a lot of just freedom of maneuver based on your own personal preferences? Yeah, um, it depends on the Christian community. So Lutherans, Catholics, Pentecostals, Reformed, they they all have their own unique things. Um, But within the Protestant side of the faith, it is um, much more a sense of um, personal need and practice. So it tends to be rather individualistic, um, which is wonderful and hard. Uh, It's wonderful in that it's hopefully pretty authentic that you come to God when you have a sense of need and uh, a sense of longing for connection with God. Um, But it does put a lot of pressure on the individual to uh, remember and cultivate those practices because no one is going to do it for you and no one's going to hold you accountable and you don't have sort of that, that regimen that you might, you might have. And I think it also gets at how, Islam and Christianity have different incentive structures, which is something that in our own personal conversations with each other, we've, we've talked about a lot um, because the contrast is quite real. I mean, the idea, so in Islam, prayer, as I mentioned earlier, isn't just something you do when you, you feel like you want to talk to God or, or kind of, you know, receive from God, but you do it regardless in the sense that it is an obligation, it's a requ- let's say it's a requirement of Islam. It's one of the so-called five pillars of Islam. And if you don't pray, let's say you pray three times a day instead of five, those other two will mean that you've you have you have additional sins. So there is a kind of um, a punitive aspect to the incentive structure. And I'm not saying that pejoratively. I think that's, that's actually quite useful mm. because it does encourage one to pray. Cause after all, if you're told, you know, if you're told, um, especially when you're growing up and um, <laughs> I know some people will think, you know, I, well, this is what religions are. They, it's about constraints. And then parents are the ones who communicate those constraints and consequences and a kind of moral universe of you know, some incentives and some potential consequences is something I believe we all need. But if the idea is that, you know, oh, if you don't pray five times a day, you're not as good of a Muslim, and that means that you're going to, that sinful behavior and that you'll accumulate more sins, you know, it is effective in encouraging you to try your best to meet the five prayers a day. But I do think that is quite a bit different than the Christian approach because, and maybe we'll have a whole different conversation one of these days about just how different sin operates, like sin as a concept, but also how like sins are accumulated in your record. So there is an idea in Islam of good deeds and bad deeds, and it's not a numerical thing. But there is this sense that you want to have more good deeds and less bad deeds, you know, and they're sort of in tension with each other. But, you know, for a Christian, I, you know, and this is something that I I just have trouble because I'm very much a believer in incentive structures, not just in religion, but also in institutions and in um, politics. But what if, you know, a Christian who's just not feeling, he's not in the kind of he or she isn't in the spiritual zone then might not pray for weeks or months or they you know how 
I mean, I'm just curious. Do you have any reactions to how I kind of laid that all out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of things. One is, um, yeah, first of all, um, prayer is for the Christian is meant to be motivated as a response that God has come to us and God has given us this gift. And so um, we respond to that gift by reaching out to him in love and joy. So we don't come to him out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of gratitude. Um, and so we're not coming to him because if we don't, we'll be punished, but it's out of this joy and gratitude of what we've been given. Um, so ultimately prayer is responsiveness that, that God comes to us first and we respond. Um, moreover, this sense of um, having a ledger of like good things and bad things that you do, you know, for Christians, there's this belief that, you know, God has cleaned all of that for you. Um, so you have been saved from those bad things that you do. And so out of response of joy at that good news, you, you pray. Um, that said from time to time, as you are right, we don't come to God in prayer. Um, and we slowly, uh, drift away. And that is where, um, forcing oneself to pray and and to practice prayer and to habituate prayer even when you don't feel like it um is a way in which you can reform your desires in a way in which god can can draw you back to him and so it can really be a gift um and i think that's some christians look longingly i think at the muslim practice of prayer because they know um, they are spiritually lazy and, and that like a regular practice of prayer would be good for them. So they, they sort of know they need this training, but I want to get back to the politics of prayer here on, and this sense that, um, not only does prayer humble us and remind us that we're not God, but it, it, it makes us politically strong. And I think I, I've become more and more interested in this, uh, one one theologian, his name's Karl Barth, I think, he said that to clasp your hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Mm. And it's this belief that Amen. to pray is to um, engage yourself in the public mission of God. Uh, it is to join uh, and to align yourself in what God is doing in the world. And so there is this clear um, sense throughout the Christian tradition uh, in any denomination that prayer is powerful, that prayer has public consequences, and that we can cry out to God and God can respond. So, you know, from the Israelites in Egypt, you know, enslaved, they cry out to God and God responds with a mighty hand. Um, prayer played a massive role in the black church in the civil rights movement. Um, this sort of belief that, um, yeah, that we can pray and God can respond. And so not only does prayer humble us, but it, it, it can embolden our political activities as well. And it can drive out our fear. And um, particularly when you're praying in a community and you know that you're not by yourself, that there are others who are praying with you. That has well, this is so great I'm curious because, of your, your reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, 
Islam is pretty strong on this score. Um, so there's there's a lot we can talk about. Um, you know, I think I made some reference in a previous episode to like a discussion I had with a Christian author about is you know Islam being a badass religion. And I think it's badass when it comes to communal prayer. Before I dive into that, though, because I know my mom will be slightly bothered by how I described prayer a couple minutes ago. So I just want to clarify to all you dear listeners, the fear of punishment is like a minimal level. But that is not the ultimate end. And you're supposed to graduate to a higher level of spirituality where there is a relationship of of being, you can even see yourself in a Sufi sense of being of God as the beloved, and you are you are having a relationship of love with the divine, and that is like an ultimate state that is challenging to get to. But at the very least, you want to feel closer to God, and prayer is supposed to have other effects on how you orient yourself vis-a-vis God and. Um, it increases faith and commitment and all of these other things. So fear of punishment is one part of it, but then there's all these other uh, spiritual and also worldly benefits that um, that are part of the practice of prayer. Now, the communal prayer is interesting because... It yeah, you, has, said it, you said it's badass communal prayer. How, how oh, is yeah, it? yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it gets to what you said earlier. Like, Can the state stop you from praying? So... The great thing about prayer is that you can do it individually, um, you know, most of the time in an Islamic context in your own home, but you can also do it on the street. And some of you may have seen like Muslims in the U.S. just kind of randomly praying and like, you know, at a rest stop or even in a hallway or I mean, um, outside of a restaurant because there's specific times that you have to do each of the prayers. So if you're not at home or there's not a mosque close to you, you just got to pray wherever you are. And let's say that you're on the beach and there's no like, or in a weird, in a, in a space where doing the physical movements of standing and going down and all of that wouldn't be like appropriate or would kind of be a little bit difficult to do. You can also, there's a version of prayer that you can do while you're sitting down, if that's your the only option that's available to you. Because let's say like you're, you're at the back of some lecture hall, it would be weird if you just did the prayer while like the, the speaker is talking. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> I love this idea of the individual choice that like drives prayer because that that is something an authoritarian state can never take away from the believer and at at this fundamental level the islam but also the three abrahamic faiths more generally are fundamentally individualistic without falling into the kind of ideology of individualism that you know is part of our modern liberal secular society the individual matters a lot and in some ways the individual is the primary unit of interaction because ultimately you're accountable in the eyes of God. Um, for the most, I don't know, Christianity might be slightly different in this way, but you can't, you can't bear the sins of another sins. Don't kind of um, sins and good deeds. Don't, 
move from one individual to another, the idea of collective responsibility that sins can be distributed, like all of yeah. that. Yeah, I, is, I mean, uh, one way to say it is that praying Muslims, Jews, and Christians, um, if they take prayer seriously, they won't be very effective communists. Um, yeah. Be, because they they will not be able to fully be absorbed into the into the communist state and imagination because they always have this practice of prayer that is this distinct relationship between them and God. Uh, and I, I like the way you said that it's essentially that um, prayer uplifts the individual without turning you into a healthy, a healthy approach to prayer will uplift the individual without turning them into individualists, if you will. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, in the communal prayer, which is, um, quote-unquote, obligatory uh, once a week uh, for... Uh, so there's a Friday prayer, as many listeners will be aware of, and it's at a specific time every Friday. So you're supposed to go to the mosque, and that's when you you join in community. But that said, it's recommended to go to the mosque whenever you can to be amongst other Muslims, and that's always seen as preferable if you have the option. But so why 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 is it preferable to be with other Muslims and pray? Um. Because of the, well, I'm, uh, yeah, it is a good question. Well, because the communal aspect is really important to Islam. Um, that if it's a way of life and there's this idea of building a community and perhaps even a broader society around shared values, that being with your Muslim brothers and sisters is a very powerful thing. And even if you think about the visual aspects of prayer in Islam, um, there'll be a prayer leader who's at the front of the prayer area in the mosque, but then everyone else is in an egalitarian setting. So however rich or poor or whatever partisan or ideological affiliation some might, someone might have otherwise, during the act of prayer, there are no distinctions. It's actually like a very beautiful physical manifestation of equality and egalitarianism among the believers. Mm-hmm. And so the prayer leader will say, um, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder as you kind of get ready and you assemble yourselves in the lines to pray toe-to-toe, shoulder-to-shoulder, and the idea there is to remind yourself that you are part of, you're an individual believer, but you are with other individual believers who make up the umba, the community of Islam. And I think just being in that mode is is really is really important. So here's my question for you. As, as someone who spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C. with non-Muslims and in non-Muslim spaces, talking about non-Muslim things, uh, what, uh, what is that experience like for you to move into the, the Friday prayers with, um, with your Muslim brothers and sisters um, to sort of move between those two very different spaces? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm getting more into it. <laughs> no, I mean <laughs> to be more serious about it. Um, so I'm just thinking about uh, the last time I I did the communal prayer, um, and um, 
And it was actually not a Friday prayer, so it was an optional thing. And I ha- I happened to be with other Muslims in a prayer space. And um, the fact that it was optional, like in some ways made it more more powerful, that it was like more of a conscious decision to kind of be in this particular space at this particular time. But it is really, I wish there was a better way for me to describe it. Hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I think there's, I, I can remember one time being, being in a church and I, I wonder how you would resonate with this. Um, being in a church and we were all asked to stand up and uh, say the apostles creed, which is this basic belief system of the Christian faith centuries old. And the pastor said to us, um, essentially, um, some of you are struggling with doubts, um, and that's okay. And for the next minute, we're going to say this creed together. And if you can't say it, that's okay. We will say it for you. And there's the sense of the community is going to carry you um, into the faith, even though you might be weak and faltering. Um, and so we stand shoulder to shoulder, helping one another in the faith. And um, and I think that's important as we think about democracy and populism, actually, because so much of populism in political life emerges out of this sense of being isolated and lonely, that I have no power, no one listens to me, no one speaks for me, um, I'm isolated, and so I need a populist politician who will speak for me. And individualism and isolation tends to lead to radical um, political figures and movements because of this sense of being disempowered. Um, And yet, if I'm a part of this communal prayer service, um, and I know that I'm connected to these other people, um, and that I'm a part of them and they're a part of me, uh, I'm less interested in um, in sort of the rhetoric of populism that yeah. no one hears you, no one sees you except for me. I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can help you. Um, when that just that doesn't resonate for me because I'm participating in this community. And to maybe like you know make even a broader point about it that we're not meant to be alone a lot of the time or most of the time. And I think, you know, our religions have a, have a wisdom and we believe that wisdom comes from God because if, you know, God is all knowing and created these practices for us, then presumably he's aware of certain benefits that we're not aware of. But um, if we look at the epidemic of, you know, despair, depression, loneliness that has been in the news a lot in the U.S. um, in recent uh, months and years, some of that comes from people who don't have close friends. They are atomized individuals. And I think we all know intuitively that when you're by yourself for long periods of time, it can be quite nice, but there is also a risk of getting stuck in a kind of unproductive rumination and overthinking and and so forth. And even, you know, not to get morbid here, but I am actually writing um, a review essay about a book on suicide. 
as it turns out. <laughs> so I've uh, so I've been thinking about this a little bit. But one of the reasons that you know dense you know densely populated countries often have lower suicide rates, like one factor, and I don't want to oversimplify the causal chain, but one factor is that in certain societies where you're pretty much always around people, it's logistically difficult to commit suicide. Um, there, there are less opportunities and motive, you know, you have to want to commit suicide and there's a motive, but opportunity and then means are other aspects. And if, and, you know, without the opportunity and without the means, it becomes more, more difficult, but there is a lot of, I mean, being around people for, for a certain portion of your time is important. One, one thing I wanted to add on, um, before we lose the chain on the badass part of it, um, you know, so Friday prayers played a really interesting role during the Arab Spring. Those were actually days of protest um, that not every Friday, but Fridays were um, the kind of regular day of protest and they would have different themes for each week. So there would be the Friday of justice, the Friday of anger, the Friday of, you know, um, freedom, whatever, different themes. And usually there would be a Friday prayer that was part of it. And people would draw strength from being in the act of communal prayer. And as you said, you could actually see in real time how people felt emboldened and empowered to challenge authoritarian regimes. And this is why um, Middle Eastern regimes have been very intent on controlling communal prayer. This is a site of contestation so much so that in certain cases, even gathering, having more than five people gathering in a mosque outside the normal time of prayer would be, you know, subject to police action, that the police would actually restrict and keep an eye on who was, and even who was going to, who was going to mosque a lot, because they tied that to being Islamist. So particularly in Tunisia, which was, um, you know, for uh, an example of forced secularization, there was a danger of going to the early morning prayer at the mosque because that showed such a high level of dedication. You have to wake up as early as 5.30 a.m. That means you are into your religion and you are committed. So the fear on the part of the regime is that these people had a kind of latent power that could be political and could challenge their authority. So it's just fascinating to see how the mosque becomes this place of mobilization and also a target of counter-mobilization by the security forces in these countries. Wow. So that is, and you know, how does prayer embolden us? I think that, you know, some of it might be asking God to give you strength, and a believer will naturally think that God is actually doing that. It's not just like a metaphor, right? But even if God doesn't necessarily respond directly to prayer in that kind of causal way, there is also the placebo effect of prayer. Like, you thinking that prayer gives you strength will give you strength, you know? And that's why in, in any number of traditions before, let's say, um, you know, going to battle— um, most cultures have had prayers and rituals they do right before they enter battle. 
And again, like, is God really going to intervene on their behalf? Well, presumably not all the time, because if there's two sides and they're both doing prayer rituals when they go to war, I mean, God can't respond to both of them simultaneously. So, yeah. but, you know, there is that kind of complication, but there, there is, but it, it gives you a feeling of strength, irrespective of what role God is playing in that. Yeah, I mean, that, that was such a powerful example from the Arab Spring of the state wanting to control public prayer because the state recognizes its political power and uh, the way in which it can disrupt the social order. It makes me think of um, two contradicting critiques of religion and religious practice. The one is, of course, from Karl Marx, which argues that religion is the opiate of the masses. So religion domesticates us and makes us servants. Um, it, it numbs us and quiets us down. Um, it, it, yeah, it domesticates us. And the other is that religion turns us into irrational zealots who are dangerous and bold, right? It can't... It, can it be both of those things? Um, does it make us does it make us humble and domestic, or does it make us irrational, wild, and powerful? And I mean, that's really what we've both. been talking about. Yeah, it's both. It's both of those things, right? Yeah, and in the Islamic tradition, you actually have a kind of these two dual, dueling approaches. So you can look at Islamic history and see Islam as a vehicle of rebellion and challenging authoritarian rule and kind of asserting one's freedom uh, from the yoke of whatever authority. But then you can also look at another part of the Islamic tradition, which is de deferential to the ruler because of the fear of chaos and what in Arabic is called fitna, which is a very powerful idea in the Islamic tradition. It means, I guess, you know, the best translation is probably civil strife. Um, and sometimes the word fitness is used to describe times in the early Islamic period when, um, very dark times when, after the Prophet died, um, companions of the Prophet, so these were among the best of Muslims, actually turned against each other in a, in a civil conflict. So, um, so there is, so rebellion, you know, Rebellion against injustice, I think, is a part, you know, a part of Islam, but also a part of um, really um, most faith traditions, certainly the Abrahamic traditions. But then there is this competing fear of what happens when there's too much rebellion and too much disorder, and there has to be a limit. So the question is always, what is the limit? Because at some basic level, you need or you need some level of order and peace for people to be able to focus on God. You know, if people are in a perpetual state of strife, it brings them away from God. So, Shani, I want to take this in a slightly different direction. You um, just this last week, you published an article in the Atlantic called "You're Better Off Not Knowing," in which you talk about. Um, mental health, and political awareness. Um, and I have a question for you on that article, but uh, before we before I jump into it, could you just give our dear listeners a, a brief summary of what you were getting after in that, in that particular article? 
Well, I didn't see that coming, Matt. Yeah, you threw man. a little curveball in there. Do you want to just lay out for me so I just have a better sense of where you're going? Um, is there a link? So how do you see... I think there are interesting links, and maybe that's what you have in mind, but tell me more about what you're thinking. So you're jumping off in the article about how um, political awareness and it, what you write essentially is like taking a drug. Uh, learning about politics and following the news can become addictive, yet Americans are encouraged to do more of it, lest we become uninformed. Unless you have a job that requires you to know these things, it's unclear what the news, good or bad, actually does for you. Um, then you go on to talk about how it's making us unhealthy, it's making us depressed and anxious, um, and there seems to be something deeply wrong with our diet uh, following the news. So yeah, could you just share a little bit more about that? So I'm glad you brought that up because it actually does tie very well to the question of is Islam a force of correcting injustice or can it be fatalistic? And obviously, I didn't mention Islam in that piece, and uh, we'll include a link in the show notes for those of you who want to read on. But um, I am obviously like informed by my view of God and my belief in God and the fact that I am Muslim, and that does find a way into my writing, even if it's not explicit, I suppose. And I do say that one of the benefits of not obsessing over the news and to actually have a news diet where you purposely restrict your news intake allows you to focus on the core four, um, which draws on some other folks, but I, I pretty much sum it up as family, faith, friends, and community. That the more we're focusing on things that we can't control, something as, I think, news pointless as whether or not Trump gets indict indicted. Pointless in the sense that we have no control over it, and we have no way to predict its outcomes, whether it be good for him or bad for him. All the time you're spending following the ins and outs like a horse race of the indictment process is less time you're focusing on the core four. But one criticism that's been, you know, lobbed against me is I am encouraging a kind of fatalism. And I think that, so just to be clear on this, I actually don't think in a democracy rebellion is rebellion is justified. So when I talked earlier about what the Islamic tradition says about like battle and rebellion in that sense of kind of going against an unjust ruler, that that is only applicable in authoritarian settings. Um, we live in a democracy, so the question of rebellion is out of bounds and off limits. So in some sense, we can be activists and protest and try to push for the causes that we believe in, but that's like a lower level of engagement than the kind of ultimate case of like putting your life on the line for, a, in a literal sense, for a cause that you believe in. So here's, here's where this article intersects for me with prayer. And it is this sense of um, this sort of zero-sum game is um, either you, you know, ignore the news and all the different issues and you sort of um, – you know, invest yourself in faith and family and friends and just sort of become politically apathetic, or you dive in to politics and political news and commentary and you live a sort of anxious, depressed, 
suicidal life. And, and there's a sense of you have this dichotomy of either you're apathetic and happy (laughs) or you're engaged and you're miserable. And here's where prayer comes in is it seems to me that as a Christian, uh, a part, an important part of the Christian tradition of prayer is being able to lament or cry out to God, having an outlet where, you know, if I read a terrible news story about some awful injustice or some terrible abuse, I can take all of that energy and sadness and heartbreak and I can orient it towards God and I can I can call out to God and I can talk with God about it. I don't have to hold all of that inside of myself and I don't have to resolve it because I'm not God. And prayer offers me an outlet. Um, it offers me a relationship whereby I can... I can hand over these awful things that I read about in the news. And so I think what some people who are reading your article maybe took from it was that there's only two options, right? (laughs) One option is, you know, engage in political news and debate and be miserable or withdraw from it uh, or just take little bits of it. Uh, But I think that that prayer actually offers us a third way to be engaged in political life. Um, but to do so in a way that uh, we don't have to solve it all, we don't have to hold or carry it all, um, but that there's actually someone with us um, who is actually even more informed about the brokenness of the world than we are. Um, and sometimes I think within a, the American public life, uh, you have voices who think like, no one knows the suffering like I know the suffering. No one knows the injustice like I know the injustice. Um, But in prayer, you're reminded, actually, no, God knows more about what's broken with America than even you do. Um, And God's responsible for this, not you in this sort of real way. And so that was my, that was my reflection as it was a great article. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was phenomenal and it really did, you know, connect with that, um, you know, that study that recently came out about um, particularly young progressive girls, uh, teenage girls, and their mental health uh, around politics and social media. So anyways, that's just what I was thinking about in terms of that's gr- yeah, the practice of prayer. So That's great. And just to emphasize just how striking the crisis is with teenage girls, the CDC report that came out about this recently, I still... This is remarkable to me, and when I first read the numbers, I actually thought I was misreading it, that one out of three teenage girls has contemplated suicide. That's just remarkable. Okay. So, like, this is a very – so, you know, this is a healthcare crisis. This is a public policy crisis. It's not just about individuals being depressed. This does have effects on the broader society in profound ways. Yeah, I want to be clear. Like, it's not an either or. And I myself, by writing that very article, am engaging in a political act. I am trying to change how people look at politics. That's not fatalistic at all. That suggests that I have the belief, perhaps a naive one, that I can change the way, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of Americans uh, think about uh, the news and how they consume it. Um, and you know, you brought up 
I just want to bring up climate because you said like God is ultimately responsible when it comes to the brokenness of America that, you know, certain, certain things are out of our hands and we have to come to terms with that. This is also reflected in how I feel about climate change. Um, when people talk or even whether artificial intelligence will destroy the universe, which is actually a real live debate on people who specialize on this. And Scott Alexander, of um, who's a big uh, technology writer, did a post recently where he estimated the chance of the world being destroyed as a result of AI advancement was only 33%. And he was saying this as an optimist. He's like, other people have said over 50%. Actually, you know what? Everyone chill. It's only 33%. And I'm like, <laughs> these people are crazy. Um, anyway, they're looking at it from like a weird kind of probabilistic framework. But if, you know, if you believe this stuff doesn't resonate with me because if you believe in God, this idea of thinking that humans, like that we have, there is something like egocentric about thinking that we're the ones who are going to destroy the world when we decide to destroy it through our own individual acts. That when you, when you kind of put your trust in God, in theory, ideally, it allows you to let go. Like, like God is going to have a pretty big say in whether the world ends, you know? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like ask Ezra Klein. Well, okay. Cause the one thing I mentioned in the piece, which is like bonkers to me. And Ezra Klein wrote a column uh, last year, in the New York times where he shared with readers, like the number one question he gets from all of his public engagements across America. So a left-leaning audience, obviously. And I could like, this is another thing that I couldn't really believe when I first read it. The, the question he gets the most is Ezra, should we have kids if climate is ending the world? So this is a way where if you consume a lot of, catastrophic news and you follow it very closely it is really literally changing human beings and in my view how god intended us to be i don't think i don't think god intended his creation to stop creating because of like a speculative claim about whether the world is going to end at a at a particular time so this stuff is like Consuming the news in a certain way and having this negativity bias can actually change our our family structure and like a really like like how we relate to our kids, whether we even want to have kids. Right, uh, right. I know it's and a I little think, bit of a tangent, but I just wanted no, to bring yeah, that up. And I, I think that I think what we're also seeing with teenagers in these studies is that it's it's changing their brain chemistry, like their the wirings of their brains, and so they're getting sick. And, um, and so I think we're discovering the, the health benefits of, of prayer in some very important ways. Um, I had one other thing th that I wanted to name, which is, of course, the, the rise of so-called Christian nationalism and patriotism mm. has, has been a constant struggle, you know, for Christians in America, this sort of marriage of American national identity and Christian faith. Um, in some disruptive ways. And that shows up in Christian prayer in some ways in which we, we pray for 
the nation that we want, which is we want Christian dominance um, in political life. And we over-identify the mission of God with the mission of America. And the one thing I was thinking about, I don't know how, you know, if you've ever thought about this, is actually the Muslim practice of praying towards Mecca. Mm. And the sense that you do not pray towards Washington, D.C. You do not pray, <laughs> right? You don't pray towards the National Monument or towards the Capitol. You have a different center of your faith. And um, I think that's that's something I would <laughs> I would love for my fellow evangelical Christians to recognize a little more is this other orientation of where we pray to that the person we pray to um, is not so identified with America or Washington D.C. Hmm. or the president, and there's this disruptive practice. Uh, of the Muslim, pre, uh, you know, praying towards Mecca. And it, it reminds me of, you know, the debate that happened over whether or not John F. Kennedy could be president because he was Catholic. And the concern amongst Protestants was that, you know, he was loyal to Rome. He was loyal to the Pope. He wasn't truly loyal to America. And of course, that's that's been the the charge towards Muslims as well, is that they're not truly loyal to America. They're they're loyal to Mecca and they're loyal to the the Ummah and and whatnot, um, and so it's it's a difficulty uh, within evangelical and Protestant prayer practices to continue to remind ourselves that we are not uh, that we not conflate God uh, and America in our prayers that there those are distinct things. So I don't know how all that strikes that. you, but that's something I've been thinking about. Okay, so this is like one of the reasons I love this podcast and like our engagement on these issues. And I'm not just saying this because listeners are listening because I've said it to you in private. There is something incredible about how having like a very in-depth conversation with some over like months and years with someone of another faith is you can see things about Islam that I as a Muslim can't see. I have never thought about like this idea, because I've always taken it for granted. It never occurred to me that one could pray in a different direction. And it just becomes something that's part of a routine and you don't like dwell on it. But the idea that like Muslims orient themselves to like to a, to a geographical area that is far away from the U.S., like that is, I think that's like a genuinely new idea that I haven't heard before. And like how, what the, what like the, the kind of intellectual and, and political implications of that are, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's occurred to someone else. I don't think I've seen it written down. So, you know, it's a cool idea, but um, yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to say like, uh, I'm really, I feel really grateful. Like, cause even on this issue of prayer, very specifically, you have quite literally helped me to change my practice of prayer because of the conversations that we've had. So if anyone has like, you know, not to get sentimental here, but if anyone has like doubts about like, and this isn't, we like, as we've said before, like we don't believe in like the gentle, fluffy interfaith stuff where we all have common ground and we just say the normal things and preach to the converted 
But to have two people who have their contrasts, that's what allows you to realize things that you otherwise wouldn't have realized. So I just wanted I, I just wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. And, and, and maybe just um, as we do wrap up, and you know, maybe that was like the ideal place to yeah, end. But I do go. want. <laughs> I think that's great. What, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? And then we'll wrap it up, man. Just a little, just like a little coda. Um, Cause I think that, what do you think about the whole thoughts and prayers criticism? You know, you hear this a lot from progressives when they're criticizing conservative Christians that when a profound injustice happens, especially when it comes to something like gun violence, for example, it goes back to this idea of how religion can sometimes can prayer if prayer is like a third way and it can almost replace not replace but it can become a focus instead of activism instead of changing the injustice through protest or through legislation and policy change on something like gun control for example people can fall back in this kind of well let's pr- you know what can we do we'll pray to god prayers yeah um and just because that's such a, I think that can become a very stark flashpoint. So for people who don't appreciate the power of prayer, they see it as, oh, these people are cynical and they're using prayer to absolve themselves of responsibility. And because I actually, since since I'm not part of the community that's targeted with this kind of discourse, I'm curious like how, how you would respond to that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I. I guess I would say, you know, on the positive side, so yes, the progressive critique of conservative Christians is that, you know, after a mass shooting, conservative Christians say, we, you know, we offer you thoughts and prayers and then they don't do anything, uh, politically speaking. Um, and the critique is, is valid in that, in that, um, progressives know that prayer honest, authentic prayer needs to be connected to action. And we see that throughout Christian scripture, that God expects a deep and integrated connection between the way that you behave um, in the temple and the way that you behave out in the marketplace and in the fields. That if if there's a disjunction, uh, then actually the marketplace starts to fall apart and the temple starts to fall apart. In fact, that God will not respond to your prayers um, if they are not in any way connected to your action. So in that sense, um, I think the progressive critique is very much correct. Uh, That said, um, the progressive critique can often come as a sort of sneering and cynical understanding of what prayer is, essentially setting up a a straw man. rather than understanding that um, for centuries, for millennia, prayer has been uh, publicly and politically impactful, as we have talked about multiple times uh, throughout our conversation, that it has had an impact in the Arab Spring for Muslims, and it has had an impact in the civil rights movement for the Black Church, um, and for many people uh, throughout their lives. And to sort of say that um, gun violence in America is a purely political issue. I think that's absolutely wrong. 
gun violence is political, uh, but it is also a spiritual struggle. And Americans need to be praying through these kinds of traumas as well. And so I do not buy into the progressive claim that the only thing to be done after an act of gun violence is political action. Um, I think that communities need to lament. They need to cry. Uh, and that is a proper part of political action. And so, yeah, spiritual spiritual reflection and political action need to be um, hand in hand. And so that would, that would be my, my reflection on that, I suppose. Okay. I'm really glad I asked that question. Cause that was an awesome answer. Um, and I, I, I wasn't sure where you would end up on that. And that's a great third way that not that we always seek the middle ground, just because something's in the middle doesn't mean it's the right path. But um, in this case, I think it, at least for me, sounds pretty compelling. So thanks, Matt. Well, that was, well, that whole, okay, I, I, this was a great conversation. So I just want to thank you, Matt. And do you want to close us out? Yeah, man, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Hey, friends, thank you so much for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you like what you've heard, uh, please check out the podcast Intellectual Seedbed, our home, which is Comment Magazine. You can find them at comment.org. Um, and there you're going to find awesome, awesome essays on politics, culture, and faith. Uh, friends, you can follow Shadi Hamid and myself, Matthew Kamink, on Twitter. Uh, our handles are at Shadi Hamid and at Matthew Kamink. You can connect with us there. You can also write us an email, uh, zealots at comment.org, and uh, we will do our best to get back to you. Um, our thanks to Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life for sponsoring this podcast uh, and for hosting uh, just this 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 relationship between uh, Shadi and myself. And um, yeah, we're we're just really grateful for all of you for listening. And please share these episodes if you find them valuable. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy with editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Shadi Hamid. And I'm Matthew Kamink. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.